can't have people be the only expert of our data. We have to be able to free the data, let the data speak yeah. for itself, let the people do the analysis, do the insights, do the data storytelling, not be the gatekeeper for a particular asset. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Jim Tayo, CDO at investment management firm Invesco. Previously, he was the CDO at Nationwide, where he was responsible for the overall strategic vision, planning, execution, and management of all activities related to the operation of the Enterprise Data Office. On this episode, Jim and Cindy discuss best practices and the evolution of data governance and information quality over the past decade, taking the digital twin approach from the world of manufacturing and applying it to the world of data and the ethical nuances of navigating privacy laws and non-traditional inputs for complete data sets without introducing undue biases. Plus, Cindy and Jim share their best advice for people aspiring to pursue a career in data. All that and more on today's episode with Jim Tayo. The Data Chief is brought to you by ThoughtSpot. For more on how the most successful data leaders are driving value in their organizations, join Cindy and the ThoughtSpot team at Beyond 2020, the leading data and analytics event of the year. Go to www.thoughtspot.com slash beyond 2020 for more information. Today on The Data Chief, we have Jim Tayo, the CDO of Nationwide Insurance. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Cindy. Great to be here. So, Jim, you're joining us from Columbus, Ohio. So I have to say, like, what's out your window working from home? Oh, it's it's great weather today here in Columbus, Ohio. A little bit brisk this morning in the, the 50s, but the, the trees are thinking about changing here in, in the Ohio Valley. Great. And I could talk data all day long, but given that you're from Ohio, I think, and we're in the midst of football season, do you follow football, college, NFL? Who's your team? I am a huge uh, football fan. And I know we'll get some groans from our audience, but I am a diehard Cleveland Browns fan. Oh, okay, good. No, good, good, good. I'm hearing this is supposed to be their year. And <laughs> well, I've been you know, to the Brown Stadium, actually. <laughs> yeah, Brown, Brown Stadium is one of my favorite places in the world. I uh, was fortunate enough to be working up in Cleveland when they were building the new stadium there, right on the the shores of Lake Erie. But, you know... Yeah, I was thinking this year might be uh, a turnaround. They got a lot of talent on the team. However, they opened up the season last Sunday from with Baltimore oh, at Baltimore, yeah. and it was not a good showing. Uh, it was very, very disappointing. That's okay. They, they, yeah. They'll have to warm up. We're <laughs> Packers fans, and they always have to warm up, even though we've gotten off to a good start. But yeah, the Brown Stadium down from... The uh, the rock and roll history Hall of Fame, museum, yeah, 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 very cool place. Very very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so let let's pivot to data and nationwide does so much, and your teams are 
the teams that you lead across multiple companies seem to get these industry awards. And I believe one of the most recent one was um, from the DGIQ, so Data Governance and Information Quality. Right. Can you tell right. us about that? Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes joke that one of the hardest things that a data office or officer could tackle is an enterprise-level data governance program you know, governance sometimes can be a, a four-letter word for many corporations where it it sometimes can detract from the priorities of the value creation and business and and growth of the, the business outcomes you're trying to drive. So learned over the, the course of working at multiple companies how to put more of a service-oriented approach into the governance framework and risk management. I know I, I scare my uh, senior leaders sometimes when I say we're going to invest the bare minimum in governance. And the, the reason I say that is you invest any more and you're taking away from those business outcome capability driven opportunities. But of course, you invest too little in your governance or risk management. You're putting your members, your partners, your associates even at risk. So investing yeah. the right amount, having the right priorities, and then coming in with more of a, a service-oriented approach with governance and expanding that across the enterprise, that's really what that Best Practices Award was for. Yeah, that's great. Well, so you say governance can be a four-letter word, and some people say to me, it's it's just a two-letter two word. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> lock it lock it down. And and it's interesting that, so your, your business stakeholders are are worried about the bare minimum because historically it's been too much they don't want to hear about it and it's about locking it down. So did that change over time or what's the difference there? I, I think it, it has changed over time. You know, I've been in a, a senior executive data leadership role for over a decade now and uh, I've seen the business partners be more um, appreciative and approachable about governance and about data risk management uh, upfront than they've ever been. And I think a lot of that has to do with the evolving privacy standards and their, their hearing and seeing the, the horror stories of breaches and uh, other data-centric issues that have, that have happened to damage brand, to damage their member and partner relationships. So our, our business partners, yes, are are much more open to the conversation initially. What you have to do is earn the right to have that conversation with them about taking ownership of their data. The business owns the data. Take that ownership, provide that stewardship, be very specific around the scope and the compelling case for the rules and controls that you put in place rather than trying to come in with more of a commanded control and policy for the sake of policy. Yeah. So I love, I love it. The business owns the data. So if you think back and, and if you were advising an organization where they still have the mindset that IT owns the data, or at least is the custodian of the data, how do you make both the business more willing to say, yep, it's my data and we'll set the policies, the acceptable risk. And how do you encourage IT to let go of that? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And so it comes from both sides of the equation, honestly, where 
sometimes you hear business partners say, no, no, you know, IT owns the data. They own the systems that generate the data. They own the analytic platforms that house the data. They own the business intelligence and analytic utilities that consume the data. Technology owns the data. And then sometimes you hear from technology, no, I, we, we own this and, and it, it's part of our ecosystem. But when we, when we start the conversations, we start with those business outcomes. What are those business outcomes in mind that we have with our data assets? And establishing that education and training for the stewards and business process owners for data management and data governance within those business units, that really sets the stage for what ownership really means, what we're asking them to do in order to own and manage data appropriately. And what we're going to provide in technology or in the data office as a shared service, what we're going to provide them as the tools and capabilities to help them manage and own that data appropriately. You, you know, you said a good word about a data custodian. We've used that term uh, many times in the technology or the data office space that we, we kind of are the data custodians. And if we believe that data is the digital manifestation of our members and partners our business owns the physical relationships with those members and partners why wouldn't they own that digital relationship we can be the custodians for that for them but they really own that relationship yeah so you used a phrase here jim i was going to wait to get into the weeds of this but (laughs) um data as the digital manifestation of our members and partners so we're really talking digital twins here. That's right. That's right. So yeah, <laughs> this, I had to give a Gartner keynote on the digital twin of an organization, but um, for people not familiar with this term, tell us how you define it. And when did you start to embrace this idea? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how you were presenting it previously. You know, uh, the new CIO had come into nationwide uh, it's been close to two years, and Jim Fowler came from GE Digital, and GE, of course, has a very, very large power presence, and they had been pioneering some digital twins. When they were describing that, though, it was more of a, a physical manufacturing mindset. Let's take jet engines, for instance, where they could create this digital representation, so instead they could they could turn it around and look at 3D views, look through the engine itself in a, a computer in, in a replicated way so that they could hone in on parts or components that they may think would, would fail quicker than others to keep them on the planes, keep them out in the in the field. So when when Jim came, we started to talk about data, the data management structure, about nationwide as a whole. Nationwide's mission as a protection company is to protect people, businesses, and futures with extraordinary care. In order to do that, you have to know your members and partners and associates. And so we we started to take that digital twin mindset from manufacturing and apply it towards our data. Because I, I have always talked about data being the, the representation of our members, uh, of our partners. And so if we can construct that clear reflection using that, that digital pieces of our, our members' person, uh, we can then meet them where they are. We can better anticipate their needs in the future 
for the mutual benefit of both them and the companies. That's how we've been describing digital twin inside nationwide is more so from a data construct of that reflection rather than more of a physical manufacturing construct. Yeah, no, it's great. So if you imagine a member and the digital footprints they use starting from the point of maybe going to your website, requesting a quote for a policy, and then maybe having a claim, how how do you represent that? And how far are you on your journey of getting to that single twin of the customer, Um, given that you probably started with siloed data structures in each of these um, lenses? Yeah, I would say we're relatively early. However, you know, the great part about Nationwide and most financial services uh, companies that I've talked to, even across industries, they've got a pretty solid master data management program. They've been thinking about these enterprise assets like a master view, customer 360 of their customer, of their producer, of their client, their um, business entity. That really is the heart of what we describe as this digital twin. So that's really where we start. And then we start to expand from there. We've been fortunate at Nationwide. We recently named a chief digital officer. The the Chief Digital and Innovation Office has been focused on digitizing key experiences and really anchoring to the the journey that a, a customer, a member, or a partner would take with us. That's where we're focusing because you could you could talk about a twin and it could feel like boiling the ocean. You want to get everything for everyone. We're really focusing and honing in on those key journeys. You mentioned uh, filing a claim. Of course, one of the most uh, traumatic, potentially, experiences that a a member or partner supporting a member could have interacting with us as a protection company. So if we can create that extraordinary care, that digitized journey, that digital reflection, so we know as much as we possibly can of that member or partner during that process, that's really where we're focusing our time is honing in on those key moments that matter. Yeah. So so a moment that matters for sure would be a claim. And one of the differences between, we use the term, you know, digitizing or automating versus digital transformation, changing, reinventing processes, not just digitizing. Can you take us through how you are transforming the data that you use to process a claim? You're exactly right. There's one thing, you know, I'll pick uh, robotic process automation, RPA, because that's something that's probably near and dear to most data professionals' hearts. And we've been talking about how do we apply automation to be more efficient in a lot of the operations and transactional environments. You can apply process automation against the worst process in the world, and you can digitize it. Yes, it can go from analog to digital, but it could still be a bad process. And that that's really where we have been very deliberate to say, is this the appropriate process to support the vision of extraordinary care, that member outcome, that member experience, or even an internal operational experience for one of our associates. Uh, And we have done some process redesign and even 
completely broken down a process and added in both traditional and non-traditional data sources, I would say that's another aspect to this. Not only looking and just not automating or digitizing broken processes, but reimagining what that process should look like and the types of data, both internally and externally, that could help us create that clearer reflection, that clearer picture of how we can anticipate needs. So I, I would say that that's been a lot of the thoughts. Yeah. So the process redesign is is very important, but hard. Some organizations, when they're running so fast, it's hard to say, wait, let's let's pause or may, you can't pause um, because <laughs> things are still <laughs> happening. And uh, this year's like there's more claims than, than we could have imagined. But um, how do you handle that still operating versus redesigning so that you get to a better place? It's very fair, and we hear it and talk about it and re- and honestly wrestle with it every day. It, it feels like you're trying to change the tires on a race car while it's racing around the track. It's, it's yeah. so true. But, you know, in, in some cases, like I, w- I will go back to the, the digital journeys. If you have a dedicated approach to reimagination, you can run the innovative, creative redesign that you're doing in parallel with what has worked and continues to work currently. And rather than jumping in and trying to change the tires of a race car as it's running around the track, you might build a new component or a, a new piece of the race car to the side. And you can have that start to incrementally make a change on how that experience is going to look in the future without completely you know taking the car apart um, because we know businesses moving at the the speed of light now and you know the last 6 months if it's taught us anything it's that we've underestimated how fast consumer expectations and consumer needs can change um, they can change on a dime and so it, it's important to run those those things in parallel yeah, we thought the pace of change was frenetic just going into 2020. It, it is a challenge to keep up. You you touched on something with the process redesign, bringing in non-traditional data sources. And I think that relates to another cool innovation area that Nationwide has been working on, the data marketplaces. So can you tell us some examples of non-traditional data that you're leveraging and how how did this data marketplace come to be? Yeah, the, the marketplace is, has kind of been a vision or a dream of mine since um, I was an analyst very early on in my career. As online uh, markets like Amazon and uh, other shopping experiences were coming into focus, and it was it was such a, a cool way to to shop or to buy or even now we're we're interacting with virtual doctor visits and and things like that. Um, data, for whatever reason, has continued to be almost locked up, contained. It a very small percentage of your overall associates have a have access to a very small percentage of your data. I've had this vision where why can't I create an Amazon-like experience shopping for data within the organization? And, you know, started to think about that when I was in my first role as a data officer. My second role got a little bit farther 
Here at Nationwide, we've actually made it happen. It's come to fruition. We have a completely virtualized shopping experience. Data. You can, any associate in the company, go to data.nationwide.com. Oh, associate. <laughs> yes, I, tried associate. To, I was like, oh, is it external too? Of course, it didn't let me in last night. But <laughs> <laughs> And I love the domain yeah. name. The domain name is great. Yeah. And, and honestly, that domain name speaks to where we want to take it. So today, yes, it is only internal. But we intentionally picked data.nhy.com instead of .net or .org because we didn't want it always to be just an internal-facing solution. We wanted at some point to be that shopping experience for our member or partner data in the same way. That's great. But how do we completely virtualize, go to a a very elastic Google-type search, be able to find and access data if there's... The two biggest complaints I have heard throughout my entire career, and even I have had, is findability and accessibility. How do we how do we make it as seamless as going to Amazon and buying way too many things on that you know two a.m. shopping splurges that we have online? The boxes <laughs> show up at your door, and you're like I can't remember what did I what was that? How do we okay, make it that easy? Now you're revealing you're you're a closet shopaholic. Okay. <laughs> Right. So you're clearly a visionary. And I, I do think the abilities to do this are are just poised to take off, particularly with cloud. But what I also loved is the way you you presented this vision and your team just kind of at least put together a prototype over the weekend. Right. So can you describe the prototype? And I would also say how did you foster a culture that really empowered and allowed them to do this? Yeah, it it was really exciting. I, I joined Nationwide at a at a very pivotal moment. They had a a data organization within technology, but but really were trying to transform and let that grow into something that could truly turn into a competitive advantage and. As I started to get to know the leadership team pretty quickly, uh, and it was very, very early on in my tenure. I'd only been there a couple of weeks, but I, I gravitated towards some of the the best thinkers and the best thought leaders that I'd been fortunate enough to to work with throughout my career. And one of them is our, our now our chief data architect. And he and I were brainstorming, and he's a he's a very creative guy. Has a background in professional photography, but has grown into a world-class data architect. And he and I were, were in my office and we were brainstorming and I, I was explaining to him just as I, I did to you and, and the audience today about this vision of a, a shopping experience. And we started to draw things up on the board and uh, it was um, it was just a lot of, a lot of fun. I love, I love those activities. And he started talking about a, a guy on his team and, you know, he went back and they discussed it a little bit. And I, I really didn't think something was going to come that quickly, but this was on a Thursday or Friday by Monday, they both came into my office, big smiles on their face and like, Hey, what's, what's going on? And they said, here, check this out. And they had a prototype of the marketplace and it is the same platform and basically the same bones as two weeks into my tenure at Nationwide to what we've grown into a productionalized product 
and cornerstone to our data ecosystem within Nationwide. And it was just, you know, so overwhelming, I think, to they took their own time. They just they were embracing the the vision. And they were using open source too, which was fantastic. It didn't cost us a lot to do the MVP, almost nothing. The underlying platform is the same that runs uh, data.gov. Uh, CCAN, C-K-A-N is, uh, is the platform. So it, you know, it wasn't really expensive. We didn't have to go get software licenses. It was completely virtualized and digitized. And it started, you know, it was kind of clunky, the first version that you saw, but at least you could feel it. You could touch it. You could see it. And then we've just expanded it from there. And that's great. Um, so a lot of passion. Uh, you also talk, it, it, I find it interesting, these technical people with creative backgrounds like photography. So as we think about talent in this space, is that part of the secret to success is making sure that people have these cross skills, creativity and technical combined? You know, and that that's also been a big passion of mine is how you how do you build the right diverse of thought and uh, backgrounds and experiences to build a, a transformational program data you know is still still early on in, in understanding how it can become a competitive advantage the data officer role is still relatively new uh, you know it only became really prevalent in like 2012. So we're, we're talking less than a decade. And so that having that diverse of, of thought and experiences, I focus a lot when building the teams on qualitative aspects too, like, uh, you know, an innate sense of curiosity, a, a willingness to, to challenge and question and come from different perspectives. I've had a professional golfer. I, I, I talked about a, a professional photographer I have had, of course, two PhD statisticians that are data scientists, incredibly valuable and important as well. Uh, I've some of my best data analysts and and data solution support and thought leadership had very very little secondary education training, but they were just they were constant learners, perpetual learners, and. You know, I, I have tried intentionally to bring in as many different perspectives as possible because I found that to be a secret to uncovering some of those really innovative and and uh, cutting edge techniques. Yeah, it's so important. So you talk about diversity, truly diversity of thought and people maybe not having a secondary education. And I saw that Nationwide also has this program, though, to reskill people for the future of work, correct me if I'm wrong, but investing $160 million to reskill workers and partnering with community colleges even. I would imagine data and analytics is part of that future of work, uh, is, but tell us about this. Yeah, that that's really been, um, if, I, if I think about from the people and talent and investment side of the equation, the, the best thing about my short tenure thus far at, at Nationwide. It was brought to me from HR, the opportunity to partner with Columbus State Community College. There are a lot of programs and a lot of training for people that are already in a data profession. 
we feel like there's there's a lot of conferences, a lot of webinars, a lot of ways to upskill and continue to grow in a data profession once you get there. There's also a lot of great programs in colleges and universities for students coming through that can learn the computer science, the statistics, and now even there are some data science uh, specific curriculums as you're coming through college. But there weren't a lot of programs, and I, I think it's very underserved for existing, high-value, highly experienced technology professional or business professionals that may be in a legacy skill set. Maybe, and I'm—I always use the example Cobol developers, but you know, I oh no, I Cobol. Coded, I was going to say Cobol. <laughs> I coded in Cobol too, so or I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not disparaging anyone, but. You know, if you think about the the future, you know, in those legacy skills, maybe some of those highly experienced, highly valuable resources and associates would like to get into a data profession, data analytics profession, but really don't know how. And that that was the great part about building the curriculum together with Columbus State. Uh, It was such a great partnership. uh, And what I wanted was something very, very broad. So I wanted to go all the way from acquisition of data through consumption and analytics, not go too deep in any one section because we didn't want it to be a a four-year curriculum. It's actually uh, 36 weeks. Uh, And there is is a lot of investment of the, the associate, but it is paid for by Nationwide as part of the employee uh, education reimbursement program. And we're on our fifth cohort um, and it's it's just been a, a great opportunity to see a, a highly valued, highly experienced associates go through that program. And the, the whole goal was to provide them the skills to compete for and win data analytics jobs. Yeah, if, no, that's, if that's awesome. that's the direction that they want to go or to at least upskill data acumen, data analytics acumen that they, that they can apply in their current roles. And uh, the response that we've got and the success that we've had has just been a a huge testament to Nationwide's commitment to its associates. Yeah, that's great. Now, so did you get to co-develop the curriculum? Because one of the concerns or frustrations I'm hearing from data and analytics leaders is the market is, in a way, even though we have a talent gap, there's too many data scientists that can't communicate the business value or understand the business context. So were you able to shape the curriculum to strike that right balance? That's a great point. And we were. Uh, I remember one of the first sessions, you know, when we could co-locate into one big room, we had one of our largest conference rooms had... 40 or 50 people, half from uh, Columbus State, half from Nationwide Learning Systems, uh, brought in our uh, senior executives in data science, but also brought in uh, a lot of our business leaders that are dependent upon these skills and associates in order to provide the insights and to do that data storytelling. And so we did intentionally strike a balance between quantitative and qualitative aspects to the curriculum. So we did co-develop it and data storytelling, you you hit it right on the, the head. It's such a 
you can have the best model in the world. You can have the best analytic process in the world. If you cannot convey the message and the compelling case for change or for um, embedding that into a business process to our partners and to then describe that outcome, then it it's useless. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of data scientists, the other challenge we have is they do great work, but it often remains just in the hands of the data scientist. And it's hard to take it to the next level of automating what one of my colleagues would call really decision intelligence. And yet you said something about being able to have maybe 30% of the models handle the underwriting. Where are you at with that? And what does it really take? Yeah, you know, getting the the great work that they do and applying those sophisticated techniques. You know, a lot of people talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence now, but it it really is grounded. The the data scientist work are their prediction machines. They are that that decision intelligence. And getting that in a virtualized mode that can near real time integrate with our systems of record had been a passion for Nationwide for quite a while. Over the last decade, the, the team had produced in partnership between the analytic group, business group, and the technology area, what they call a model factory, where they've been able to at least streamline components of getting the models into production. The quicker you can do that, the quicker you can gain value, measure the the progress, because we, as we all know, models need to be evolved over time. They're not perpetual, because as the, as the audience changes, so does the model need to change. One of the biggest successes that our analytics team uh, and our, our enterprise analytics office that have, have really been at this for over a decade, so I can, I can take very little credit, if no credit, but I, I will tout their success. They've been able to produce underwriting models, and I'll use life, for example. Life is a very invasive process, life insurance underwriting. They've been able to go from 0% automated to close to 30% automated underwriting decisions. They, it's much less invasive. It's the, the time to decision is dramatically, exponentially shortened. There's not as many tests that are required. And their hope is they can get up to 40, 50, 60% automated. And they're on their eighth iteration of a, of a machine learning multi-ensemble you know, algorithm. And it was built by that data scientist group. So that's one area where I think Nationwide has been very successful because of that, that innovation that they were doing in that decision intelligence where they're seeing and reaping the benefits. The, I, I think the statistic was that the life uh, application cost dropped $400 per application when they had instituted the model, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, such a measurable business benefit, really best in class. Huge business benefit. So on the one hand, I get excited about the business benefit, but then I also get a little scared with the automation. Um, How do you prevent bias getting into these models? 
And does it go back to also what are your data inputs? Are you bringing, uh, we talked earlier about alternative data, external data, non-traditional data, I think is what you called it. How, do, how does that help? Yeah, that that's a great point and something that we are actively wrestling with to ensure that we're talking about it and that we're putting um, controls and oversight and reviews in place to ensure that that's not that's not happening. This overarching, you know, with the privacy laws, California privacy, and there's other states that are are going to be instituting similar. Uh, globally, you have GDPR. You can imagine life underwriting. If we're going to use non-traditional data, it could be, you know, health records or digitized. Let's say your your Apple Watch um, transmissions. When we start talking about uh, IoT, I'm not saying that we're using those. So I don't want anybody. To yeah, no, no, no. As some but, people but would be. want it. Hey, if yeah, you're yeah. if you're the person <laughs> jogging five days a week, t- right. take that Fitbit data. Definitely, right. please do. If I'm out clubbing every night, maybe not. <laughs> but but as we're doing that, we we have to wrestle with this idea of ethics in artificial intelligence and data ethics. Uh, the example I always use, which is, um, and I'm I'm not pinpointing, and this isn't a, a real example, but let's say. For instance, that we underwrote uh, or underwrote a life insurance policy, and it was indicated on the policy as a non-smoker, and we we underwrote it that way and and had bound the policy, had it in place for a period of time, and then let's say that it is acceptable that a company could use social media data as for policy reviews, policy underwriting, or policy servicing. And we see pictures on that particular member's Facebook, you know, smoking a cigar and partying and, and having a good time. What do you do? You know, from uh, what can you do legally and in a compliance method, you could potentially cancel the policy. You know, we have proven that um, you didn't answer the, the application truthfully. We could increase your premium. We could wait until you file a claim. And then, you know, announce that we've we've noticed that something was wrong with the application. But what you legally or compliantly can do is sometimes different than what you ethically can do. Yeah, that legal is the moral minimum. Exactly. It's the moral minimum. So ethically, is this where your oversight? So do you actually have an algorithm or data and ethics review board? Or is that something in, that you're working on? Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. We just created uh, an ethics review board, a data ethics review board. There was already a, a corporate ethics office. And uh, our corporate ethics officer, interestingly, is part of the data ethics review board with legal, with data professionals, with business professionals. Um, it's something that we've recently created. Uh, our board has... We have members on our board that are very in tune to uh, data, data security. And so they've asked questions about our, our data risk, data management process. The We've actually elevated data quality, sufficiency, and protection as one of the top risks of the company. And ethics is a component of that. So we've created sure. a, a construct to have that dialogue, to put some... 
you know, I, I don't believe there's ever going to be a, a completely automated algorithm that defines our ethical standards at Nationwide as a protection company. But if you're having the dialogue and at least you have a mechanism to ask the questions and ensure we're comfortable on a baseline set of principles above and beyond, I think you said it incredibly well, the, the moral minimum of what's legally acceptable. I think that's where you start to ensure that the ethical values of a protection company is being applied to our automation. Yeah, totally. Just having the framework to be able to have the conversations is so key. And uh, if you heard the Data Chief podcast with Bernard Marr, he was very critical of some of the tech companies that have just punted with this. So having that form is, is great. When you think about this, where do you stand with transparency or explainable AI? So so would you even take it as far as, so internally explaining how a model works, how, what data you use to write that uh, life insurance policy, but do you think you'd also take it to the point that you're sharing that with your members? Uh, I think that we are going to get to a place where we have to where yeah. it, it's going to be a standard expectation of it. It'd be an expectation of me. You know, I'm a, I'm a data guy. And, and so I, <laughs> I, I probably, you know, if I apply for a loan or if I go to the doctor or something or, or uh, am, am talking about an auto insurance policy, even with someone from nationwide, I may ask things that, you know, most consumers wouldn't, but more and more, I think our standard member or partner are going to be asking the same type of questions and to understand how those predictions are occurring as far as, and even including and up to what data was involved, what data of mine did you use to make that prediction? Those questions, I think, are going to be standard expectations. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, right now, everyone's still just freaking out about their FICO scores in, uh, <laughs> do I break this lease, my unemployment, unemployment uh, you know, who, who knows? It's still all such a black box. But, you know, you're working on so many innovative things, digital twins, you're working on upskilling, you're working on data marketplaces. But if you look ahead two to five years, what innovations are you most excited about? Um, you know, I, I would. I would start with the list that, that we've been describing. These are things that don't happen overnight and require a constant care and feeding in order to truly bring them to the embedding them into the underlying nature and fabric of a hundred year old financial services company like, like nationwide. So we'll continue to focus on, on those pieces. But what, what I want to see in the next three to five years is the the ecosystem the data ecosystem when i when i talk about our data strategy which you you mentioned it can go in so many different directions i land on data democratization data virtualization and the digital twin those three legs of a, a stool are really what we're going to stand upon to, to catapult the type of care that we can provide our, our members and partners. How do we get as much data as possible 
available to as many of our associates, partners, and, and members as we can. I've used the statistic 95% of our data should be available to 95% of our associates. Historically, it's been dramatically lower than that. Yeah, and, terrible. And I'm, I'm tra- challenging a lot of the conventions in, in saying that. And of course, we're not going to share you know, proprietary con- contractual data or, or confidential information. But I really want to push the envelope. Why can't we have as much data as possible available to as many associates as possible? That will bring the entire organizational's data acumen up together. Virtualization. We have spent uh, over my tenure, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, I led a, a data warehousing project. Took nine months and you know, probably half, if not more than that, was building requirements about segments of data that you could keep and segments of data that you had to get rid of. How do we instead play data where it lies? How do we completely virtualize and expose data digitally so that if it's on legacy platforms that you don't necessarily have to physically lift and shift that data to another place, which gains you zero business value or zero business return on investment? Instead, can we virtualize and play data where it lives? And then the digital twin we talked about a little bit, you know, how do we truly personalize those experiences? Yeah, so these are all great ideas. When you say to your people, why can't we democratize it? Where do they push back? What's the num- number one reason they say, no, I don't like that? And it, it probably comes to the the privacy and the contractual privacy. agreements that, that we may have. I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, the more that we share, the more risk we incur. And you know, in some cases that that may be true. And there may be some areas where we're not going to be able to get to 95%. But if we put a stake in the ground and say as much as possible, and if we put a a statistic out there, maybe we get to 75, 80%. And that still is dramatically better than we are today. And and that's really where I'm trying to Massively. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it goes back to your point at the beginning, the business has to decide that acceptable level of risk. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll hit on one other aspect too, which is something that I'm curious about the the listening audience. And I'm I'm curious your opinion too, as, as you have talked to others, growing up in a data space and a risk space, financial services, technology, there are times when data professionals almost hinge their job on knowing a certain asset or being able to get to a certain type of data or, you know, if, if ever I need, you know, this type of data, I go call Jim and Jim knows how to get it. And I'm curious, I'm, we have to break that mold. We, we can't have we, people, we do, we can't have people be the only expert of our data. We, we have to be able to free the data. Let, let the data speak yeah. for itself. Let the people do the analysis, do the insights, do the data storytelling, not be the, the gatekeeper for a particular asset. I don't know if you are hearing similar things. Absolutely. We call it the analyst of the future. I, I love your phrase, free the data. Definitely free the data. And when you say, yeah, data professionals are part of it, I think sometimes they haven't known another way. So it is almost a perfect storm of new technologies enabling it and also the demand for more data 
we have to break that process. We call it uh, the analyst of the future. And even there's exactly. research saying it's probably a Harvard professor. They call it the IKEA effect because they built it. They want to own it. Yeah. Um, and yet, no, we need we need to stop that. Yeah. So, so good. So, Jim, you actually started as a business analyst going back your expansive career to key bank. So, if you were if you were advising one of those business analysts today, you look at your journey now to serial disruptor, visionary CDO, what words of wisdom would you impart on them? Yeah. Uh- and, and it is a great question. I've kind of had a, a circuitous route to get from where I started my career to now. The interesting thing that I talked to students uh, in college or interns that were come in, the role of CDO didn't exist when I was in college or when I first started my career. So what I would instead uh, encourage uh, folks early in the career or that are, are studying or would like to move into a, a data role, focus on the key skills and attributes that you want to develop. I look at that Venn diagram of computer science, statistics, understanding the math, because prediction machines are all about the math, the computer science, being able to code some, you know, when I was <laughs> C and, you know, COBOL, and, but now it's it's Python and you know, anaconda, and I don't, I don't know why we use rodents all the time to describe <laughs> in data space, like toad and squirrel and, and all of those things, but some computer science and coding capabilities. And then it's the business acumen, learn the business, learn the, what the outcome is that you're trying to drive. And if you can combine components of those three things on the qualitative side, communication, learn to tell the story, to communicate the message. Uh, I spent, I was not a great communicator early in my career, and I got that feedback. I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror, uh, recording myself and talking about things, and it, it has helped through the process of, of moving into leadership Clearly, roles. you're a fantastic communicator. <laughs> and and I, I, I tell people early on, I got the feedback that I, I just... I was too technical. I went too deep. You know, I, I couldn't connect the the business goals and outcomes to the what we were working on. And so it, it was a, a deliberate effort to to build those skills. Wonderful. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. And it's so it, it's bringing together some of those key components. And, and the last thing that I would say that um, I think was something that we wanted to, to hit on. Is there ever a day where I say, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I am completely out of my depth. And quite honestly, because of how fast data is moving, technology is moving, it's almost every day that I feel like in some way or another, I'm completely out of my depth. The, the even good now. Part, even really? now. Even now. If and, you can't do it, who then? Well, the good part is I've got brilliant people around me. And it no single person in a technology or data-driven organization is going to know everything. I am humbled when I talk to my chief data architect half the time. He just gets it. And I know how to apply him to the big picture in order to make sure that all of the, the fabric stitches together. Uh, same thing with my uh, leader in data science and engineering. I am humbled when I talk to her. <laughs> 
about what she knows and what she is driving, but I know how to apply her, apply her team, apply that into the entire fabric of the data organization. And so that's what I would encourage people to be. You don't, you don't have to answer every question. What you need to do is know how to leverage your teammates, leverage the people that work for you and with you, and together you will be the, the best you you can be. Wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Jim. I always like to end with one question. 2020 has definitely been a more challenging year than anyone envisioned. Yeah. Um, but what are you most grateful for? You know, I'm, I'm grateful for Zoom. <laughs> I'm grateful for <laughs> Teams. I'm, I'm grateful for Skype and uh, WebEx and all of the digital tools that Nationwide and, and other companies have prepared uh, to get us here. Because there's, I am an introvert at heart, to be honest. My profession requires me to be more of a, an extrovert, which, which takes a lot of energy. But there is something about being able to see people's facial expressions and to interact. And I don't believe companies could have been as successful through this virtual transformation without the, the great tools, technologies, and capabilities we have to see each other and to be able to interact in the way we are. It's pretty impressive. And with that, Jim, uh, maybe it's hard for me to say this, but I guess I have to say good luck with the Browns this year. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom and insights. Thanks, Cindy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or listen to more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BI Scorecard. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.